How many of you do an annual physical, an annual checkup? More in here than in the 930. It's not surprising. Uh, you know, I do an annual checkup, an annual physical, and uh, I, I've done it since I, I turned 40, which is just last year. Thank you very much. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but before then, I hate, hate to tell you, but I, I avoided doctors. Not that I had anything against doctors, but, uh, you know, when you don't go, you don't know. And what you don't know won't hurt you. That was my philosophy. And, uh, you know, when you're young, you, you think you're invincible and you think you have the physical stamina and the strength to endure anything. But, and I also believe that doctors, when you go, they find stuff. They do. And they want you to come back. And it's another copay. You know, and uh, you can't fault them in that. And they want to give you prescriptions and all of those other things. And uh, so, praise God, I'm my age, you know, 41, <clears throat> I am not on any medication. But my wife is on a lot. Does that surprise you? No, I didn't think it would. Anyway, actually, she inherited a lot of hers <laughs> from her lovely father and mother. And by the way, uh, her brother is on most of the medication she's on, so, and he doesn't live with me, so it's not all about me. Uh, just want to let you know that. But um, today, we're going to do a, a personal checkup, uh, a spiritual checkup, not a physical checkup. And I think there are people that like to avoid spiritual checkups. Uh, we don't want to see a reflection of ourselves, an authentic reflection of ourselves in a spiritual mirror because what you, when you don't go, you don't know. And, and when you don't know, you can't be held accountable for what you don't know and you just go on living your life as if everything's great. But the reality is that every time we open the Word of God and we study it, and I hope you do every single day of your life, there, there's something that happens when you open the Word of God and it communicates to us and it reflects in our lives some aspects about our lives that desperately need to be changed or some things that need to be implemented or some things that need to be confessed. And so the reality is that every day should be a day in which we open the Word of God and the Spirit of God speaks to us as we're communing with God in an intimate, personal love relationship where we are having this daily encounter. But the reality is that most of us just don't take the time to do that because we're in a hurry and we got an agenda filled with things and a crowded schedule and things that we should have done yesterday or do today. And so we, we just get bogged down and we get behind. So we're going to take a look at a passage in John 21, beginning with verse 15, where we're going to see Jesus has a very personal one-on-one -on -one with Simon Peter. This is a passage that is going to help us conclude. I, I looked at it about uh, when we began this series back in January 1, we have already, I already scheduled this passage this morning. As we conclude now this, this final look as how we are then been called by Christ to follow him. And Simon Peter has been called to follow Jesus. And he's challenging him once again to follow me. And he's challenging us to follow him. In order to follow him, we need to make and do a spiritual checkup, an analysis of where we are spiritually. 
And so I invite you to stand one more time to John chapter 21. We're going to begin with verse 15, and we're going to read all the way through verse 19, this narrative found tucked away in this addendum to the gospel of John, which I believe is as equally inspired as all the other verses in this beautiful chapter. John 21, beginning with verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He, Jesus said back to Simon Peter, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus then said back to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show what kind of death He was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Father, I pray that as we stand in honor of your word this morning, that you've been honored by the praise and the worship and the adoration that we have offered to you, for you alone are worthy of our praise. And we are here today to honor you, to praise you, and to glorify you. And God, I pray that as you now begin to use the verses of scripture that we've read and now we're going to study, that you would inspire these words to bring application into our lives so that we might then understand as we see a reflection of your word in this encounter, this dialogue between Simon Peter and you, Jesus, that we might might do within our own hearts a self-examination, take us to the test, examine our lives and our hearts, and see if we are offering you any less than our best. Father, sometimes even our best is not enough, and sometimes even though we put our best, we can't accomplish it, but you can, through us, provide that which is lacking in order for us to do what that you've asked us to do. So, Lord, use this time, inspired by your holy word, to challenge, to transform, and to change our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you take a look at John 21, you know in the very first part of John 1, 21, 1, where we see there is an encounter, there's a dialogue that happens between Jesus and Simon Peter. But before we get to that part, there's a lot of things that, that have happened that really sort of set up this conversation between Christ and Simon Peter. In John 21, 1, we learn that Jesus has already appeared in chapter 20 two times to the disciples. The first time was on that first Sunday evening prior to his resurrection. Everybody knows why we worship on Sunday morning. He rose from the grave on Sunday. And that evening he appears not only to Mary, but he appears to the disciples. He makes this glorious appearing. He's been resurrected from the dead, and they are are just beside themselves that Christ, their Savior, their Lord, their Messiah, the one they have committed to follow now has been raised from the dead. The second appearance is also recorded for us in John 20, where we learn that Jesus appears in the upper room where there's a guy many of us know as Doubting Thomas, who says, unless I feel his hands and put my fingers in his side and see him personally, there's no way in the world I'm ever going to believe that he has been raised from the dead. And Christ appears out of nowhere 
And that wonderful, glorious encounter takes place. Jesus, according to a couple other gospels, has told his disciples from, from that second appearance to go to Galilee, to wait for him there, to meet him in Galilee. And so the disciples, all 11 now, there are no longer 12, there are 11, they gather together and travel as a group from Jerusalem to this favorite spot in Galilee, waiting for Christ to appear. And while they're waiting in John 21, 1 through verse 4, uh, they get tired of waiting. They, many believe, have been on a fast. Maybe they're just hungry. But from the window, more than likely, I can imagine from where they are gathered, they can see out there, they can see the Sea of Galilee and the moonlight is lighting down upon it. And guess what is on a dock that they can see from their window? None other than Simon Peter's fishing boat. And guess what? It's evening. They're hungry. These expert fishermen know that the best time to catch fish is in the evening. Why? Because they catch in the late evening so that they can have fresh fish to sell on the seashore in the morning to those who will gather to take it home. And so they, they, they then, at Simon Peter's suggestion, because of his leadership, hey guys, let's go get my boat. Let's go out and let's catch some fish. We can feed ourselves. We don't have to wait for Jesus to supply or to provide for our need. We'll do it ourselves. I have a tendency also to think that that was not only the primary motivating factor. I think Simon Peter, more than likely, as he saw that sea and as he was in that location after Christ had been raised from the dead, was a little bit confused about what his prospective future was. And so because of that, he probably began to think about, all right, maybe I might return to fishing. I don't know how many fishermen we have in here, but fishermen love to fish. Now, those of us may fish on occasion, but a guy who fishes as many times and as often as he can is a person who loves to catch fish, a person who loves to fish. I'm convinced Simon Peter was a guy who loved to fish, and he wanted to fish, and I think there was a sort of a rub between his love for, for Christ and his love for fishing during this particular period of time. Because he loved to go fishing and because he was hungry, he did what came natural to him as a fisherman. He convinced six other disciples to get on the boat with him. Not all get on the boat. Just six others. And so they get on the boat together and they go out and they fish in the early, in the late evening and they come back and guess what? Empty-handed. Haven't caught anything. Unbeknownst to them, Jesus comes up to them on the seashore and he says, hey guys, have you caught anything? No. Cast your net on the other side. And they do and to their surprise they catch fish and guess what? Like before, he is recognized, this time he's recognized by John, the beloved disciple, and John, instead of yelling it out, says, hey, Peter, that's Jesus. Peter says, it's Jesus, awesome. He does the impetuous thing because Simon Peter is impetuous and he puts on his garments again and he goes out. They're not probably more than 100 yards from the, seashore, from the seashore there. And he makes his way to Christ. And when he sees Christ, he discovers that where Jesus is awaiting him to arrive there is a fire of coals. There is, uh, there is a, 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 a beautiful fillet of fish that's on the fire awaiting for him when he gets there along with some bread. The disciples follow quickly behind Simon Peter, get there as quick as they can with the catch and in the boat. Jesus commands them then to bring some of the catch, to put more on the fire, on the coals, on the barbecue. And then it, it says, according to the scripture, that Jesus then became the servant once again to his disciples and he served them fish and bread. 
And then it's interesting we see in this text in verse 15, something happens. Jesus is having a very intimate moment with his disciples around this this beautiful fire, and they have eaten themselves full. We're going to do that in just a minute, right? I said we're going to do that in just a minute, right? Right. Don't talk about food very much or we'll get hungry. And then Jesus then turns away from the other disciples and turns directly at Simon Peter, and they have this encounter. And it's here that Jesus is saying, Simon Peter, I want you to examine your commitment to me because there's some things right now, in spite of all that has happened and all that you've experienced, you're lacking. And so I want to take a look at that. There's an outline here in verse 15. We see, first of all, the checkup that Jesus gives, the great physician to this incredible disciple named Simon Peter, who probably most of us can relate to. He says, first of all, in this checkup, there's an aspect about concentration. Jesus concentrates on Simon Peter. He ignores the other disciples who are there, and he focuses specifically on Simon. And he says in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus turns to Simon Peter, and he speaks to him. He turns to Simon Peter. It's almost as if the other disciples are not present. He turns to Simon Peter, and they begin to have this intimate, very personal dialogue. How would you like to have something like that with Christ? where he opens up your heart and displays your condition before the whole body of believers? We do a lot to conceal the true reality of our condition, don't we? And we come on Sunday morning pretending as if we have lived for Jesus Monday through Saturday, but reality is most of us, if not all of us, have not. And Jesus does this surgery out in public in the open in front of the other disciples because I believe Jesus is doing that so that not only they but us can learn this probing that he is doing in the heart and the life and the ministry of Simon Peter. But he concentrates on Simon Peter. And what that told me is that that when I have a yearly annual physical, guess what? No one can have that in my place. Wouldn't it be cool if you had somebody that could go and do your physical for you? You know what? I don't like those things. I don't like the sound of rubber gloves. And so I'd rather you go do it for me, okay? Would that be cool? Now, why is that not not appropriate? Well, for a lot of reasons. But number one, they would not be able to diagnose your condition. And if that person who represents you has conditions that you don't have, they might give you medication that you don't need. They might have something that you don't have. And so see, this this personal evaluation is very personal, and and Jesus is cluing in on Simon Peter, and it's something that as we look at what is about to take place, no one can do your exam for you. No one can represent you. No one can stand in your place. So when you do a self-examination, no one can take it for you. You must do it yourself, and when you do it, you must be open and transparent and honest. And tell the great physician what's going on so that he can diagnose what's happening. And so Simon Peter is having a very personal, intimate time. It's a a focus of concentration. The reason why we need to concentrate ourselves is because when I concentrate on others and I begin to compare my life to others, what's the end result of that? Well, if I compared myself to, uh, let's say, Brother Denny here, uh, he's a much better Christian than I am, and I might not see all the intricacies in his life, and I might think, you know, I'm not doing very good. And I begin to feel bad about myself. 
But if I compare myself to Brother Andy over here, I might think, you know, I'm doing better than Brother Andy, so I'm pretty good. Can I get an amen to that? (laughs) See, when I begin to analyze or evaluate myself based upon other people, I either walk away with a false sense that I'm doing better or doing worse than I really am, so I must step up to the plate, let the great physician examine me and be honest and and have integrity with him, and he then enters into my, my reality and reveals my spiritual condition. Well, as we do this, don't, don't hear my words or anyone else's words or anyone else's voices other than the voice of Jesus as we come to the Word of God and let Him, through the Spirit of God, speak into your life. Concentration. The second thing I see is that not only does it begin with concentration, but it builds with concern. There's this whole concept of a concern here, and I think as we do this spiritual checkup, we need to examine the concerns of our hearts because Jesus enters immediately into the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is the heart. It's the love of Simon Peter. I mean, Jesus is calling into question his love, his devotion to Jesus. Notice three times in the passage, 15, 16, and 17, he says, as he asks Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Verse 16, Jesus saying to Simon Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Then in verse 17, a third time, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice he says, first of all, do you love me? Not do they love me, do you love me? It is a concentrated focus effort on his love for Jesus. Do you love me? Right now, Jesus wasn't concerned about the others. They, too, had disobeyed God. They, too, had gotten impatient with God. They, too, had not waited on God. They, too, had gone with Simon Peter at his leadership and had gone fishing. But they were not under question here. It was Simon Peter. He came to him and said, do you love? Do you love? That word, and many of us have been in Bible studies galore. We know exactly what he's saying. But here's it in a nutshell. Jesus says the first time, do you love me? Do you love me way up here, this, this, this wonderful, supreme, unconditional, totally sacrificial, this highest quality of love, do you agape me? The second time he then poses the question to Simon Peter, do you love me way up here? And then the third time he says, do you love me down here? Do you fillet me? Okay, you don't agape me, but do you phileo me? Do you, you don't love me with a supreme love. Do you love me at least like a friend? Do you have at least some affection for me? You don't truly love me because love is not all about affection, isn't it? Is it? No. So he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Okay, do you love me? He says, do you love me? Who's the object of the love? Jesus. You know, if we're not careful sometimes, we'll love the things of God more than we love God. If we're not careful, we'll love the things that God has given more than God. And the object of our devotion, the object of our affection, the object of our, of our commitment is to the person of Jesus Christ and none other. He is to be supreme. Do you love me? Notice he says, more. Do you love me? More. More is a word that needs no definition. It is the object of our love 
is Jesus and none other and no one other and to nothing else but and only him. That means I don't love my spouse more than him. I don't love my children more than him. I don't love my job more than him. I don't even love my church more than him. I love him more than anybody and anything. And I, I, I get it. It's a hard place to be. Because we're so attached to this life and to this world. And we hang on to these things. That somehow we elevate above God and we say, I love these things, God, but I love you. But when, when, the, when the choice is given, how does it pan out for you? He's the object of our love. You know, I'm reminded about a guy who says, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? What did he say? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. To love God, that's the greatest commandment. That is the commandment that we have. It's to love God greater and higher and supreme than anyone else. And he says, love me more than what? These. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me, Simon Peter, more than these other disciples? Do you love me supremely? Do you love me only? Do you love me more than anything and anyone else? There is no one else that is to take first place and make him second place. So as we do an analysis, as we take a look at our hearts and we determine through this checkpoint, this this checkup here, exactly what it is that we would define our love for him. Do we love him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and all our strength? Are there things that we love more than him? How do you love him? What kind of devotion do you have to him? Is there anything or anyone that you love more than him? If you do, there's going to be, there's going to be a problem in your life. You're going to have a hard time following Jesus. Because if I love my spouse more than I love the Lord, then I, I'm, I'm not going to make the right choices. If I love my children more than I love the Lord, I'm not going to make the right choices. If I love my career more than I love him, I'm not going to make the right choices. It affects every aspect of my fellowship of Jesus. And I must come to terms with that reality and say, Lord, as Simon Peter's going to say in a minute, I love you way down here. I don't love you like I should. And that's the problem, isn't it? Do I love him more than me? Do I love him more than myself? Interesting, he then talks and moves to confession. In the checkup, he says, all right, let me, let me require a confession of you, Simon Peter, because there's a confession, I think, that we often need to have a checkup because not all, not all the time what we confess, we actually mean. For ladies, how many times has, has your husband said, I love you, but he's not demonstrated that he loves you? And his words are meaningless. Nothing worse than that in a marriage. How many times have we sung, I love you, We've said that we love you, but it's not played down in the reality of the choices of our lives and the direction of our lives. Notice his, his confession in verse 15, 16, and 17. We'll read all the way through all three. Simon Peter says to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to Jesus again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says in verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Interesting, he says yes three times. 
Every single time he says, yes. This is an emphatic yes. It is a strong affirmation. It is an affirmation, yes, yes, yes. I love you, yes. Jesus called into question his love. And every time he said yes, notice after the yes, he always uses the word Lord. He is calling Jesus his Lord, and the word Lord simply means someone who is in supreme authority over us. Simon Peter had been called as a disciple when he was fishing, follow me, and he left his, his boat and his, his, his career and his family, and he followed Jesus, and later he was invited to become a part of the inner circle, one of the 12, and he abandoned everything to become a part of the inner circle, part of the 12. He'd been following Jesus all this time, and now we see here he has come to the recognition, the reality that, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my supreme authority, you are my commander. Is that reality? Not really. Because remember, he was told to go and wait in Galilee, and he didn't wait. He was called to be a, a minister of the gospel and a shepherd of the sheep, and he was reverting back to his old career. So even though he was calling him Lord, he was not genuinely Lord, was he? Yes, Lord. Interesting, he says, you know. I don't know, that, that, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Anybody know what the heebie-jeebies are? Yeah, more in here than over there. It's kind of sad I'm beginning to relate to this group more than I am to that group. I don't know why that is. I'm only 41, but anyway. You know, the word know here, he's appealing to Jesus' omniscience. You know everything. And the reason why that that. That theological reality gives me the heebie-jeebies is because there's no way that I can masquerade. There's no way that I can fool. There's no games that I can play with Jesus. I'm transparent. He, he sees through all of my facade and all of the, the lies and all the pretense and all of the game. He sees my heart, my true condition. He knows what I, I am thinking right now. He knows what I'm feeling presently. He knows where I was yesterday, and he even knows where I'm going to be tomorrow. That freaks me out. That when I come before him, I can't play games with him because he knows my true condition. And so the only thing left is authenticity and honesty. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Interesting. Each and every time. Jesus said, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Do you love me? Notice it says he was grieved. Why was he grieved? He was convicted. He recognized and realized that Jesus was asking for this, and he was giving him this. He was not living up to the commitment and to the reality of the devotion that Jesus was requesting and requiring of a disciple of Jesus. Do you agape me, Lord, I phileo you? Do you agape me, Lord, I phileo you? Do you agape me, Lord, I phileo you? You know all things, and I am grieved in my spirit that my love for you is not unconditional, and they are not the priority in my life. That reminds me of a man who came to Jesus, we often refer to him as the rich young ruler, and he said, how can I inherit eternal life? 
He said, go sell everything you can and then come follow me. And he walked away sad. Jesus, having been questioned, why did he do that? What did he say? It's because he loved money more than he loved God. Isn't it true that I think sometimes if we're not careful, we'll put other priorities and other values ahead of our devotion and our love for God? And we must understand that what we confess must become a reality. And when our love for him, as is described in the, the, the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus, who had lost their first love. A church had lost their first love. They were doing a lot of wonderful things, but they had lost their first love. And he says, remember from which you have fallen, repent of your condition and return to me. Make me once again your first love. And those words ring true in the confession of our faith this morning as we stand before a God who sees our hearts, knows our minds. He says, remember where you used to be. Repent, turn from where you are and turn back to me. Only through repentance can there ever be reconciliation. Without repentance, there is no reconciliation. Once we repent, there's reconciliation, and then we're able then to reflect the authenticity of our confession. It's what he's saying to Simon Peter. It's what he's saying to us. He said, evaluate nextly your commission. I want you to do a checkup on the commission that I gave you because, you see, Jesus had, had come, what, to redeem a lost world and to recruit disciples after training to succeed him to continue on in his ministry. And the whole time Jesus has been spending with these, these 12 disciples, he was pouring into their lives because he knew he was going to ascend to heaven and they were going to carry on his ministry. They had been called to be ministers. They had been called to be shepherds after the good shepherd was leaving, they were going to take over his task and his responsibilities. And we see where Jesus then turns to Simon Peter after his confession. He said, yes, Lord. Uh, I'm sorry. He says, says to him, feed my lambs. Jesus then tells him, tend my sheep. And he says a second time, feed my sheep. Both words, tend and feed, are different words, but they mean categorically pretty much the same thing. Let me give you these adjectives. He says, herd them, lead them, defend them, help them, guide them, and nurture them. You are my shepherds, and you are responsible for my sheep. Herd them, lead them, defend them, help them, guide them, and nurture them. But notice he says, feed, tend to whose sheep? Whose sheep are they? Come on now. Whose are they? They're his. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. We are simply stewards of what belongs to him. We have been given a living trust that we will be held accountable and responsible for. And all of the gifts of the Spirit and all of the gifts of this life and all of the things that he has endowed upon us, every aspect of our lives, once we come to faith in Christ, every part of your life is a living trust. Your finances... Your time, your talent, your treasure, everything you have right now you think is in your possession as a Christ follower, it doesn't belong to you. Your bank account doesn't belong to you. Your career doesn't belong to you. Your business doesn't belong to you. Your job doesn't belong to you. Your spouse doesn't belong to you. Your children don't belong to you. They are a living trust. We raise our children as a living trust 
to give them back to God so that he could use them in the ministry and use them for his glory. Every aspect of our lives are a living trust that he has endowed to us. They don't belong to us. This church, our lives, our families, our homes, our cars, it is all his. Tend my sheep. The sheep basically is the flock. They're believers who've placed their faith and trust in Christ. And if you ever feel like a sheep, because sheep are not very smart, and most of the time I feel very unsmart. And sometimes to relieve the tension, I'll look at myself in the mirror and go, bah. Laugh if you want, but you know what? You're no different than I am. We're sheep who need a good shepherd in John chapter 10 who gave his life for the sheep. And we who have been called to pastor, to shepherd, to feed feed the sheep must look to the good shepherd to lead us. But the reality is that all of us in this room have influence. All of us have an aspect in which our lives influence others. And all of us have a responsibility to shepherd that flock that God has entrusted to us. We're all basically ministers. We're all servants. We all look to the good shepherd to lead us as we follow his lead. So in your checkup this morning, how's your service? How's your ministry? Did I tell you there's no retirement in ministry, senior adults? No retirement in ministry. Well, I've served for 35 years down there in the Sunday school class, and I'm going to retire. No retirement. As long as you have breath and life, you're a servant. You're a minister. And you better have a ministry. You better use the influence that God has given you. And the only reason why you're on this planet and you have life and breath and, and, and influence is to be used for his glory to build up his kingdom, and you better use it. But the time left that we all have is very short, and we never know when he's going to return. Check up on your commission and your service. Next, let's, let's do a check up on the cost. He, he issues to, to Simon Peter this whole aspect about discipleship and the cost of discipleship. Notice he says, I'm going to read through it very quickly. He says, truly, truly. Whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying, pay attention. It's kind of like you're being in class and, and the professor says, this is going to be on the exam. You better write it down if you want to pass the course. Now, We're not trying to pass the course. We've already passed the course. Jesus did it all for us. It's about what he did, not about what we do. You get it. But he's saying, truly, truly, I, Jesus, say to you, Simon Peter, this is a direct prophecy or a promise to Simon Peter, not the others who are there. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Speaking of Brother David back there, I'm going to bring you up, Brother David, one of our deacons. Great, great man of faith. Love him. Great guy. Any way about Brother David? Always sits in the very back. He likes to get out quick. We were talking about this, and I invited him uh, to something. He said, uh, can't go, it's too late. Actually, his daughter said that it was too late. He couldn't go. And I said, I thought you weren't married anymore. We buried his sweet wife just a couple of months ago. I thought now you were free. And he looked at me and said, when you get my age, you'll learn that you're not free. 
He just has another younger woman telling him what to do now. Right, Brother David? That's right. I, th- I, think, I think that's kind of the gist of what we're saying here in, in Jesus saying to Simon Peter. There's a pre-conversion, there's a, a pre-discipleship thing here that, that is conveyed. He's saying, you know, Simon Peter, before you became a disciple, you were self-centered, self-willed, managed your own life, did as you pleased. That's what you did. That's, that's pre-discipleship. But now that you're a disciple, you don't get to do that anymore. And the reality is, someone said, well, that's not true discipleship because it says here you don't want to go. You know, to be honest with you, there are things that God brings into my life and asks me to do I don't want to do. And I'm the pastor. And don't look pious and act like you don't know what I'm talking about. There are things he wants you to say you don't want to say, things you want to become you don't want to become, places you, he wants to lead you you don't want to go, things he wants to change in your life you don't want to change, sins you must confess and repent of. He doesn't want that, and so we have a tendency to resist it. But as a disciple, as a Christ follower, we have no option, no other opportunity, no other responsibility except to say, yes, we don't go where we want to go. We go where he sins. We say what he tells us to say. We think what he wants us to think. We become what he wants us to become. He's our shepherd, and we, as his sheep, follow his lead. I think there's an aspect about that here. But I think there's also an aspect in this text where he's talking about the upcoming death of Simon Peter. Because it says here, well, stretch out your arms. What does that look like to you? Come on. Crucifixion. And we see in the text The Apostle John clears it up for us so that we don't have, you know, he knows that we're sheep. And sometimes we don't get it. And he says, this is said to show what kind of death that he was going to glorify God. Simon, Jesus is telling Simon Peter, you're going to die the same death that I died. You're going to die on a cross. And tradition in history seems to indicate that many believe that Simon Peter was crucified. That was the end of his life. But he saw himself as unworthy, they say, to be crucified as Jesus was crucified, and they hung him upside down. Imagine that, as if being crucified isn't enough, hang me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified as Jesus was crucified. Being suspended by your feet, nailed to a cross. The head rushing down to your head, and blood rushing down to your head. That's that's phenomenal to me, and I and I think what it's suggesting here is a saying, "Hey, Jesus, is saying to him, hey, count the cost." And as we do a, a spiritual analysis and a little checkup, let me ask you something. There are times when he says, "Go here, God, that's too costly." Say that, God, that's too costly. God, become that. I I, I just that, you're asking too much. A tenth of my income. To, to teach in this class, to speak to a neighbor about Jesus, to stand up for you in the workplace, it's going to cost me. It might cost me my job. It might cost me friends. It might cost me, what about the cost? Is there a cost or a sacrifice too great that he wasn't willing to make for you and for us? And if we are following him, what's the cost? Everything. The cost is everything. 
Well, it doesn't sound like a good marketing campaign to me, does it to you? Come follow Jesus and give him everything. You have nothing. Guaranteed pain, suffering, sacrifice, hardship, difficulty, circumstances, situations. You might be friended. You might be beaten up. You might even be killed for your faith. Come follow Jesus. I try that as a commercial and see if that sells today. That's one of the reasons why many churches have given up on that kind of message. It doesn't draw a crowd. Then lastly, notice the charge. Jesus said, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Yeah, after saying all that, he said, follow me. You know, I, I've said this before, and I think it's worth saying again, that Jesus has never asked us to do a single thing that he himself didn't already do. And when Jesus gave this word to Simon Peter, he says, dude, you're going to die on a cross? I've already died. And you will too. I can't imagine living after this promise, this prophecy, Jesus gave to Simon Peter living for 30 years knowing that you're going to die on a cross. That's how Simon Peter lived. He lived approximately three decades past this promise. He lived for 30 years serving and ministering and going and changing and becoming, knowing all along fully that his ultimate destination, the end of the road for him, would be crucifixion. And yet he was willing to go wholeheartedly without reservation. It's interesting to me, though, that uh, Peter's a lot like, like we are. He's a little slow in getting there. He doesn't get there yet. Because notice what happens after Jesus says this. It's not on the screen, but in the text, in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had learned, leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? I'm going to die. What about him? What's he doing? I, I want to know about him too. Ma make him die like me. <laughs> I don't want to be the only one. And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? In other words, he's saying to Simon Peter, deal with yourself, man, and only yourself. And quit worrying about others. I don't know about you, but i got enough to worry about with me. You see, comparisons can be really dangerous as we begin to analyze our lives. Because comparisons can make me look better than I am or worse than I am. And they don't give me a true reflection. And it's really, really important that we take the focus off of others and put it where it needs to be. And as I put the focus on me, I have to honestly say, it's not all about me. It's all about him. That's the real struggle and the rub in life, isn't it? It's all about him. Because honestly, deep down inside of our hearts, we struggle with our own humanity and our own carnality, and we want to make it all about us. And he says, hey, Boswell, it's not about you. Oh, but Lord, it is about me. No, it's not about you. Yes, it is. 
No, it's not. And as I look up to him and make it all about him and see him in all of his glory, I allow him to reflect the true condition of my life and I make whatever adjustments need to be made accordingly. So as we close, what's this checkup revealed in your life? What would a personal checkup reveal in your commitment to Christ today? What things need to be implemented? What things need to be removed? What things need to be changed? What places do you need to be transformed? What is he speaking into your life from his word through his spirit to your heart as he reflects the great physician, your spiritual condition? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.